I will trust Brexit focus with Paul Goslin and Jared Dean. Welcome to the 10th episode of the Hollywell Brexit Focus podcast. My name is Jared Dean and as always I'm joined by Paul Gosling. Paul, great to see you. Hello. Later on in the episode we're going to hear uh, from our session on Brexit and good relations that we held as part of Good Relations Week. But before that, Paul, uh, there was an EU summit in Salzburg last week. And that has been humiliating for Prime Minister Theresa May. She failed to persuade the European Union to back her plan, which was called the Chequers Plan. Uh, As a result, the negotiations have been pushed back yet again with a new deadline of November, but only if there's progress in October. Now, Donald Tusk, who's president of the European Council, has said that the Chequers plan will not work and would potentially undermine the EU single market. At home, Boris Johnson, who's now the ex-Foreign Secretary, described Chequers as a suicide belt around the UK constitution, with the detonator handed to the European Union. A significant number of Conservative MPs from across the party have criticised the Chequers proposal, with many hinting that they will vote against it in the House of Commons. Of itself, it's important to recognise this would not trigger a general election because of the fixed-term election legislation, but it would create a constitutional crisis. Uh, In the exclusive interview with the Hollywood Trust broadcast as a special podcast since the late the previous uh, main podcast, the government's second most important cabinet minister, David Lindington, told us that the government's strategy is to do a deal with the European Commission and then rely on the Conservative Party loyalty in the House of Commons to get the agreement through Parliament. However, that's looking increasingly difficult as a strategy. In a statement by Theresa May following Salzburg summit, she stressed that there are two roadblocks to progress. The first of these is over the future trading relationship, which the European Union says has to be either the EEA, which is sort of like Norway has, the Norway model, which means the UK stays in the the single market, uh, possibly also within the customs union, which would make it slightly different from the Norway option, uh, paying into the European Union still. The alternative is a basic trade deal, which is like Canada, uh, with Northern Ireland... uh, It's possibly still within the single market and a control in the Irish Sea. Uh, And that's something that's also unacceptable to the Conservative Party. So they're basically faced with two options that are unacceptable. But it does look as if the Cabinet and also most of the Conservative Party is moving towards uh, a Canada-style deal which would push us further away politically and in trade terms from the European Union. Um, That would also create an additional problem for us, as well as the fact that it would separate us uh, from the Republic of Ireland and create questions over the future of the border. It also potentially means, I think, that there are questions over the future of peace funding, because if we have that further distance from ourselves with the European Union in political terms, then actually it does make questions, new new questions rise over, over peace funding. Now, the second big problem emerging from Salzburg is itself the Irish backstop, because the UK will not accept an Irish sea border and has said it will put forward a new plan to address that. But, you know, we've had all these suggestions we're going to have new plans and they've not come forward. What the UK has also said, or Theresa May has said specifically, is that she is now demanding a counter-proposal from the European Union in order to make progress. Her comment was, in the event of a no deal, we will do everything we can to avoid a hard border. That, I have to say, worries me a bit because it does rather suggest to me that if there is a hard border, she's saying, well, it's not our fault. Now, two heads of government at the uh, Salzburg summit 
said that they wanted the UK to have a second referendum. That was both Malta and the Czech Republic. They both said basically that they see the best outcome as being a people's vote, the, the second referendum. Now, that campaign has been led by one of Tony Blair's former cabinet ministers, Andrew Donis, who, who this week is putting forward that uh, demand at the Labour Party conference. It does look as if they, they'll probably have some sort of fudge at the Labour Party conference and not quite come out one way or another in terms of whether they support a second referendum. But happily, what we have had is as a result of Andrew Adonis, uh, who uh, is Tony Blair's former Education Secretary of State, he visited Derry and we've got an interview with him talking about the people's vote. Well, it's, it's increasingly clear that Brexit's going to be a disaster. It's going to trash the trade of Britain. In the case of Ireland, it could be much worse than that because it raises all kinds of issues about uh, the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And I also think it's very worrying for our security as a country too, because if you look at the last uh, few hundred years, whenever we've been divorced from our continent, it's always caused us big problems. We should be close to our continent. We should be actively engaged in its uh, its security. And we certainly shouldn't be pulling ourselves out of the key economic and security institutions of Europe. But the big problem is that two years ago when we had the referendum, nobody knew what the terms of exit would be. Remember, we were told by Boris Johnson that we could stay in the customs union, we could stay in the single market. There was no, going to be no problem about a border in Ireland because we were still going to have exactly the same trading arrangements as before well as it becomes clear that there are a whole load a whole pack of lies that were being told two years ago and it's just not possible to leave the european union but stay in everything that safeguards our economy and our trade i think the only way of resolving this democratically and effectively is for the people themselves when they see the treaty that Theresa may comes back from brussels with at the end of the year the people themselves should have a vote and they should have a straight choice. Do you want this treaty? Now you've seen it with all of the problems it may cause, particularly uh, here in Ireland. Or would you prefer simply to stay in the European Union and put this nightmare behind us? Now, one of the reasons why some people in England are concerned about the idea of a second referendum is whether that will provoke the far right to being more active and arguing that uh, democracy is uh, ineffective. I mean, what's your response to that? Well, it clearly cannot be anti-democratic to hold a democratic referendum. I mean, the answer to that is the fact that we're having a vote. We have general elections every, well, there's only a two-year interval between the last two general elections. There's now a longer interval between the referendum on on uh, Brexit two years ago and now than between the last two uh, elections and the question that's going to be asked in the referendum is a fundamentally different one from last time. The question last time was if you could get the best possible deal would you like to leave and remember we had the 350 million a week for the NHS that was on the side of the bus and all that kind of stuff. Well now the issue is now that you can see the terms now you know there isn't 350 million. On the contrary, there's a 39 billion exit fee that we're going to have to pay. Now that you can see that we're not staying in the customs union, we're not staying in the single market, there are going to be all kinds of problems about trade and particular, in particular problems about uh, borders in Northern Ireland, whether between uh, the North and the Republic or between Northern Ireland and, and, and Great Britain, if there's going to be some kind of customs barriers uh, down the Irish Sea. Now that people can see all that... They should have their say. So there's a proper, full democratic argument now for having a, a referendum on the terms of Brexit. The Highwell podcast Brexit Focus, funded by the Community Foundation of Northern Ireland's Brexit Dialogue Fund. Download this programme and stream it for free on soundcloud.com, Apple Podcasts and stitcher.com.
Subscribe, listen, share and enjoy. Very interesting there from Andrea Donis. And Paul, there's also been the Migration Advisory Committee has come back about possible labour shortages after Brexit. That's right, Gerard. I mean, this is one of the big issues that's sort of gone around the Brexit. Uh, you know, what should we do in terms of international labour moving into the UK? And do we need to have people with skills to fit the, fill those uh, those job vacancies. Now, the Migration Advisory Committee is a body that's been set up by the government to advise on what it should do in terms of inward migration of labour to meet shortages. And what they've said is that basically people with high levels of skills who generate high incomes for themselves, they should be allowed to come in, but we should put an end to low-skilled uh, labour migration where we can. And their suggestion instead is that employers need to pay more in order to attract more people from within the UK to do those low-skilled jobs. Well, thank you very much, as always, for that update. Do you have a burning question or query regarding Brexit? Then contact us via email at brexit at hollywelltrust.com or tweet us at hollywellt or leave us a message on our Facebook page and Paul will try and address that issue in a future episode. So we're going to move on now and hear a recording of the Brexit and Community Relations event that we held during Good Relations Week. Uh, at that event, we heard from Terry Wright, a representative of civic unionism. We also heard from Darren O'Reilly, an independent councillor for Foilside constituency on Derry City and Strabane District Council. And from Maureen Hetherington, who is involved with the Junction, but is also a board member of Community Dialogue. And Maureen was presenting the findings of the Community Dialogue report and did that very issue of Brexit and community relations. Um, between October 2017 and March 2018, that was a very period of six months, 35 facilitated dialogues took place across Northern Ireland uh, and that included over 200 participants. It was a very wide cross-section of society, uh, so it engaged you know, most people who live here. Um, the big overall reaction summing up was um, that it had made a significant and a divisive impact right across Northern Ireland. Um, it certainly generated a climate of great uncertainty and concern for the social, political and economic future of Northern Ireland. Certainly there was a feeling that it had damaged relationships between the Catholic Nationalist Republican community and the Protestant Unionist Loyalist communities. Certainly a lot of people felt that it had undermined the Belfast Agreement and the, the peace process generally. Most participants viewed the combination of Brexit and the collapse of power, sharing that, that it had a serious negative impact on the peace process. Um, and they felt a real fear that this was going to lead back to entrenchment, sectarian tension, um, back into orange and green issues, uh, growing tensions over the border pole, and uh, growing concerns about a return to political and sectarian uh, violence. Um, and then there was also, uh, it was expressed that it had, it had started to create an unwelcome climate, both for resident EU and non-EU nationals. And that, uh, you know, most participants, regardless of their background, acknowledged they didn't really know what they were voting for. They felt that they'd been led up the garden path by political parties. Um, they felt also that there was no informed decision-making, so they felt that what they were doing was, you know, uh, actually going by a gut feeling and, you know, regretfully the fact that they hadn't thought, thought through any impacts and consequences of it. Um, and then uh, 
they felt very let down by the political parties. Uh, felt that they'd been misinformed and misled both by the media and ones that we were led by the nose. Um, but it was also coming through that for most people who voted to leave, it very much indicated the levels of discontent uh, with the pre-Brexit content. There were people, uh, you know, participants given reasons of feeling marginalised and alienated, a feeling that their cultural identity was being eroded. Uh, and there's a threatened sense of belonging for most of them. And then others indicated the reality of social and economic deprivation. Uh, and the most common reason cited was the socio-economic impact of EU freedom of movement. Um, and again, this huge myth that, that is reflected mainly in the marginalised communities who felt the EU policies that were impacting employment and housing opportunities and put pressure on the social services. Again, then overall participants felt they were being weren't being heard or taken account of by political parties or the negotiations, uh, and many did express in most of the workshops that there was a need uh, for a non-party political civic voice reflected through a civic forum or something similar. Uh, and then most did indicate that they felt that a second record referendum was an absolute must. But the, the report drawn up by David Holloway is available for people who want to avail of the full report. Two things which struck me in particular, having read the report, is firstly, the phrase that's used in there is a climate of fear. Mm -hmm. So clearly the peace process has been dragged backwards because of not simply the vote, but how the vote has been interpreted by different communities. And it's this sense of how the Brexit vote has fed into the concept of cultural identity, in particular amongst Protestant unionist loyalist communities, in the sense that there is a feeling that's expressed within the report that some people, many people perhaps, voted leave in order to reinforce their, their sense of who they are as a community. Uh, and perhaps you would like to talk a bit more about that impact, particularly on the PUL communities. Oh. Well, I suppose, um, again, you know, when you look at the perceptions of the DUP, there were loyalists who felt that actually what the DUP were doing were actually, it was damaging. And they felt that, the, you know, but the whole border coming into question again was a vote then more potential for a united Ireland. So there's sort of contradictions there. And then they felt also that the DUP were increasing, you know, sectarian division as well on top of that. You know, and that is from both PUL and the CNR CNR community. Uh, perhaps, Gerald, I could extend that to asking uh, Terry Rice, who's got a long history within unionist politics. Our project has had difficulty in engaging with unionists, and we've had repeated rejections from requests for interviews with DUP politicians. We, uh, we also attempted to speak to the uh, uh, unionist MEP, and we've not had any engagement from unionists until you've come here. So it's very good that you've spoken here today. I mean, do you want to give us your view about why we've had difficulty in attracting unionist engagement to our project? I work outside party political structures, Paul so um, I wouldn't claim to be an expert on how the parties view. Um, with regard to the DUP, um, I only speak to certain individuals and um, I think their party is split on Brexit. Um, it's sometimes forgotten uh, that there was 45% of unionists who voted to remain uh, and voting to remain was not just a nationalist Agenda. There was a significant number of unionists who voted to remain also, and some of those would be in the DUP, 
so there is a possibility that the DUP are split on it and therefore if they take a particular line that those splits could well become evident uh, and they might not want that to happen. The UUP, uh, when they took a line on Brexit, um, they didn't take a party political view on it. Uh, they left it up as to a conscience vote or a free vote within the party. So, And I think personally the UUP is in a very weak position at the moment. And uh, I obviously still have friends from it is in the Unionist Party and uh, I think there's some sort of um, review going on within the parties to see where they actually want to go and again they don't seem to be taking a line on anything. Uh, so most of my contacts are with community and civic, what I describe as community and civic unionists and, and there are people who, for example I work with the Bands Forum, I work with the Northwest Cultural Partnership, that takes me into working with um, Culturelon and they have conversations about Brexit and it's very clear there that people have individual views. Um, I would be surprised if you approach some of those people that they wouldn't engage. Uh, but as for the party political people, the only the only conclusion I can come to, uh, the reason they, they don't engage is because they don't have a particular line other than the one that they take publicly. And uh, they're sitting on the fence at the moment waiting to see what I mean. The thing is so uncertain uh, that nobody knows if a deal is going to be done, if a deal is done, what it's going to be, look like. Um, the DUP at the moment seems to be led more by their Westminster group than by their, their Northern Ireland group. And clearly they're very closely aligned to the Tory party there. So again, they may not want to do something that embarrasses the Tories. So, But I mean, that's all pure speculation, Paul. I have no evidence. Uh, it's just from the feelings I get from speaking to people. Do you get a sense that Brexit has been divisive within the unionist community, particularly, as you just mentioned, given the DUP line of the insistence on helping to drive through Brexit when they come from a place that the majority of people voted they remain? Well, I mean, there's division there anyway. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's clear lines of... Uh, I was in the Union's party, as you know. Um, I mean, I had a conversation with Alec Cain one day. And I said, Alec, what we really need is a political amnesty. He says, what do you mean? I said, the people that are in the DUP who should be in the UUP and the people in the UUP who are in the DUP, we need a day when they can all swap over and you'll get, you'll get clear lines uh, of policy and where they are. That has never, ever taken place. So, so you have people in both parties that really should be in the other party. So there's division there anyway, but it's not structured, it's not constructive, and in many cases some of those divisions are personal. Mm. You know, because of electoral histories, because somebody lost a seat, because somebody else split the vote or whatever. And a lot of it's personal and a lot of it's petty. So it's not constructive, it's not policy related, it's not evidence based, and it's not providing the sort of strategic leadership that unionism really ought to be providing for the whole community, in my view. Because mm. I'm not a Protestant unionist. Yeah. I happen to be a British unionist. That, that, that's my view. That, those are my values. That's, uh, that's, that's the politics uh, I embrace. Um, but that possibly hasn't answered your question, but there's the vision there in a way. I'm not sure that Brexit has actually made that any worse than what already is. One of the things that struck me very strongly looking through the Community Dialogue report is the extent to which it's reporting that uh, people from, uh, some people from a unionist and loyalist perspective uh, were keen to vote to leave the European Union to protect cultural identity for future generations. 
I mean, and it was it felt almost as if they were imposing a view on younger adults in case they drifted away from a stronger unionist cultural identity. Do you think that, that that's nailed that in terms of the reports? Um, when I uh, when I was speaking to people about Brexit, uh, I mean, unionism is not an homogenous group. There's all shades of opinion. It's a pretty wide spectrum. They like to use the word broad church. To me, it's a spectrum of views. And you'll get some people within the loyalist community, PL community, uh, who would identify with the same sort of attitudes that you'll get in parts of England, for example, to do with immigration. Now, they have that view not because they're a unionist, but because they see immigrants coming in and changing the profile of communities and so on. I don't share that view, but that's a view that some of them have. So that's nothing to do with being a unionist. That's to do with your attitude towards immigration. Some of it actually borders on racism. Um, uh, so you'll get, you'll get that in parts of Scotland, you'll get that in part of Wales. Uh, they're also on the sovereignty. Um, that's about the sovereignty of Britain, uh, uh, which to me is a myth. Mm-hmm. Because living in a global world, I don't think any country can regard itself as sovereign. Um, particularly when you sold most of the family jewels to foreign nations anyway. So this notion of sovereignty is it's a, it's a myth. But again, but if you go to England, you'll find people talking about sovereignty as well. You'll find it amongst loyalism. So is it because they're loyal? Is it because they're union? No, it's because of an ideology that they hold. It's because of a perspective that they hold. And it's not necessarily because... They're, they're loyalists, so it's not an homogenous group. People will hold the view because they're they're unionists, but they will also hold the view because they happen to have a particular view about politics. And uh, those who voted Remain would have different views. But then some of those values, some of those views that they have would be shared within the nationalist community as well. Okay. Yes. So turning to yourself, um, it's like from the broad nationalist community, Republican community, and you're also a community worker as well as a councillor. What's the sense that you're getting about Brexit within within the community? Is there a sense that it's created further division, or is it something that's even on people's radars? I think that the synopsis given for the PEL community would be near enough similar, in a sense, um, more integrated in some issues. But I would say if you look at it in the face value, there's differences amongst um, political um, parties and people, um, even within republicanism. Um, some republicans are very much... Um, campaign for the EU and some are saying it's an opportunity to put the national question back on the agenda mm-hmm. um, so they're, they're, they're using that as, as a way of, of, of reigniting that debate around the national question um, on a community level um, I was just speaking to you prior to this yeah. I've been just asking people this last week um, I'm going on and talking about Brexit and how does it impact you and one guy says you can't put Brexit in your metre um, you know it, it, it doesn't give you electric and at this moment in time, that's where people are at. People are day to day, hand to hand, trying to make ends meet. Mm-hmm. And Brexit is a is a thing away up in Etherton. And I think it's uh, so similar to the time of the crash, ten years now, where people were saying credit crunch. People here didn't feel that. I don't think because they were living in austerity for forty years, they were managing benefits. They didn't have employment to do, so they were able to manage what they had. And now you're only seeing the story, the Tory agenda that's coming forward where austerity is now hitting working class communities in the sense where benefits are being cut, there have been sanctions and the impact that's having. I think Brexit could be the same. We don't know what Brexit will bring, but people are envisaging it will be the same process as what, what had happened 10 years ago. And of course the other thing is that actually Brexit is already impacting, but do people identify a negative economic impact on themselves as 
arising out of Brexit, by which I mean that we've got UK growth at about 1.5% at the moment. Without Brexit decision from the referendum, the expectation was we'd be with between 2 and 3% growth. So we've lost somewhere between half a percent and maybe 1.5% in growth. But do people feel that? Because they don't know where they would have been if there hadn't been the Brexit decision. And presumably, people you're talking to, Darren, aren't saying, well, I would have expected to be better off than this, about, you know, Brexit's hit that. I'll, I'll give you a sample form of how people understand Brexit. And a guy says to me last week when we were going to a wedding, the Euros week now, when he was changing his pounds to go to the hotel, and that's where they realised it. They don't yeah, and actually what he means is sterling's week <laughs> against the euro, yes. But what he was saying was, you don't yeah. get much euro for your exactly, pounds anymore. Yes, yes. And that was him identifying with me that, you know, this is, this is what Brexit's happening. But and and of course, a lot of people, I mean, a lot of people are, li- are working in Derry, live across the border, and for them, they've suffered, you know, a significant pay cut because they can't pay their mortgage, you know, in the same way they could in the past. But I think when we were talking about percentages of voting, a lot of the people who I would be de- dealing with day and daily just didn't vote because they didn't understand it. They, they, they weren't aware of what they were voting for. They were scared to vote for. So you're talking about the fear. The fear is not necessarily come back to our conflict or divisions around borders. The fear was, what, what is this? What does it mean for me? Because you had awful campaigns on yeah. both sides putting fear into people. You will lose the NHS will fund the NHS yeah. on one side. We'll lose workers' rights. Oh, we'll we'll make mm-hmm. sure workers' rights are protected. People are just afraid to even vote. Mm-hmm. I don't want to go near that. I, I want to stand back. Mm-hmm. So there's a sizable amount of people who I would be dealing with who just didn't understand it and are, yeah. are just petrified of it and hopes it goes away. Yeah, there's just one point which maybe uh, should have made and neglected to make, and that is that within unionism, there's a generational split. And uh, I mean, and for this, I do have research because it's been shared with me by academics. There's a large number of people who would come from the broad unionist community. They may not even call themselves unionists. Uh, young people who uh, would identify very closely with social justice issues. They would be supportive, for example, of the the change on abortion. Uh, not necessarily free choice, but they would want to see movement on the. Uh, they would also be uh, supportive of probably an Irish Language Act, not necessarily in the format that has appeared on the proposals that emerged from the Irish Language Group in Belfast, but in principle they would have no difficulty with an Irish Language Act. Uh, they would also have been favouring remaining in Europe because they're much more globally conscious, they travel much more, they're on social media. I mean, this would reply to my own family and to their friends. Uh, my son, for example, spent a year living in Amsterdam on Erasmus. They value that, as I do. I have a lot more grey hair than they have, but I, I share their views. And uh, So there is a generational uh, split, but those young people do not vote. Uh, I mean, it's been shown on the research that they're not, they're not voting because they don't feel, as many older people do, that there's not a unionist party who expresses their view. Uh, whether one emerges or not, whether it emerges in a civic format, I don't know. There looked as a possibility with NA21 that would reflect that sort of vote, but we all know what happened to it, and it possibly has spoiled the chance for someone else, I don't know. But I think it's an important point that I should have made and didn't make, that there is a generational split. Yeah, just, just another quick point on that too, you know, about, um, I mean, I live in the country now, up with the sheep and the cows and the 
backwaters. I was glad I was lucky to get in here today. Um, but but the reality there too that there's there's a difficulty even between the urban and the rural community and talking to people who uh, are heavily invested in the, their farms. Uh, survival based on EU subsidies. In fact, there has been huge uh, diversification into the, the, the growing of crops or whatever they would have done previously in order to meet the EU requirements for natural habitat, for certain ways in which you can get um, subsidies and funding and all the rest. And, and there has been a huge amount of unrest where people would have felt loyalty to uh, a party and now feel that they are being compromised and the reality the grassroots uh, there's, a, there's a real fear of what's going to happen the farm's going to go and that's going to push prices up and you know the ripple effects of that so that's another serious consequence of Brexit and leaving it and Maureen, I, I wanted to follow up with Terry's point about the fact that uh, there's disengagement within younger unionist uh, communities and whether there was evidence you found within the report, community dialogue found within the report, that actually the sense of frustration with politics within Northern Ireland and the lack of a functioning executive within Northern Ireland had led to significant people not voting in the Brexit referendum and whether that varied according to the two core communities. The interesting thing is that the majority of people interviewed were over 18. Uh, We had some people between the ages of 18 and 24 that took part but mostly you couldn't even get them in the room to engage them and they didn't want to know and as you were saying Darren, you know, there's that lack of information lack of knowledge uh, and also the fact that you know many who are mobile will be up and leave uh, they'll not stay here anyway and it's this mass migration I mean if we look at the, the UK overall the amount of people that have actually left is far more than people who come to live across the UK and Northern Ireland anyway and, and that's one thing that has never been addressed by our politicians so um, there, there hasn't been the engagement because young people have not wanted to engage I, I, I've been involved in a study we, we started about 18 months ago now and it's around exodus of young people throughout the city yeah. and it was just based on the Nandi schools and, and as a youth worker dealing with we, 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 we young people and asking what opportunities they've seen um, throughout the city and district and uh, it was worrying to see some of the responses so we, we thought maybe we'd get this down and, and try and get it on the report and out of the report we, we asked um, nine questions in total uh, and some of the questions are around political unrest what was that an, an, an indicator for you leaving or what was the indicators and I think the first hundred we got back on, 98% of them says they didn't see themselves having a future in Derry. Yeah. Um, we, we, we surveyed over 750, uh, and I think that, that total dropped down around mid-80s. Mm-hmm. But a, a sizable... Yeah. I, I was in St. Joe's recently where there was four local schools, and Brexit was a, the first issue on, on, on the agenda. And young people were politically aware of Brexit, and they were, they were really keen to get involved in the discussion. But after the discussion, I asked that question, and out of 48 kids, 100% of them says they didn't see themselves having a future in Derry. So Brexit must be an indicator in that group because it was very much a common theme that they don't see themselves living here. And one of the things that came, emerged from the report, uh, Maureen, was the fact that there's a proposal either for resuscitating the Civic Forum or moving on to the Citizens' Assembly in the way that the Citizens' Assembly being in the South. I wonder, Darren, whether you felt that uh, from the engagement with, for example, young people at St. Joseph's, w- whether there's an interest in you know, sort of rebuilding community dialogue on a, a functional, you know, a, a strategic level within Northern Ireland. I would say within the under, maybe under 18s, I would say definitely there's an appetite 
once young people then move past that age up to maybe between 18 and 24 that decreases I mm. think uh, the involvement and, and I think that's down to the, the support that they're getting through school councils and school, through school forums community forums and youth infrastructure that's mm. that's strong within the city yeah. is promoting that so I think we have to capture it at that age between 16 and 18 if we're really looking to make change um, but I think 18 to 24 is maybe mm. lost but they're away mm. or, or they're, they're, they're possible they were on the dole and they just the, the, the impact of, of mental health and, and you know hopelessness and sets and it's hard to motivate people to get them out. It's just I, I don't think you can underestimate the anger mm. with groups. We were recently working with 35 groups, over 140 participants, and currently working with eight areas with up to 200 participants. Not one focus group uh, has, you know, every single group has taken the opportunity to voice their anger and frustration at the way the politics is playing out at their frustration about um, not being, uh, their voice has not been heard with regards to Brexit or the negotiations. And there hasn't been one group that at some stage in our process of working with them that hasn't emphasised that. And I don't think the politicians realise the depth of the anger and the frustration as a result of what's happening at the moment and the fact that there's no devolved government, nobody speaking for them, uh, and, and the fears around Brexit. So I think that the politicians need to be aware just how angry people are at the grassroots around this. Well, I would, I would share more in view that there is anger and frustration, and uh, every day is something is revealed about the RHI inquiry, and people are obviously listening to it, and uh, that anger grows, and that frustration grows, and what seems to be emerging is talk now about some sort of civic voice, and uh, whether that's built into the structure, whether the structures of the Good Friday Agreement need to be reviewed and re-examined, which would be my personal view. Um, but I think the parties will probably resist that but nevertheless I think it needs to be promoted and pushed to say that's a personal view there's certainly rage um, rage maybe is too strong word there's certainly a lot of anger uh, and frustration because I know we hear a lot of talk about bread and butter issues and it becomes a bit trite but people are concerned about employment people are concerned about the health service People are concerned about education, they're concerned about the treatment of special needs children and so on, their uh, welfare, they're concerned about a whole range of those issues and whilst Brexit sits on their, their agenda that they think about, it's not the only one and in many cases it's the other ones that are prioritised. And just a quick point, again in speaking to people in the unionists, I couldn't quantify as to how widespread this view is, but it certainly is a view that people felt that the border issue became a bigger issue than it needed to be. Because I don't know anyone in the loyalist unionist community who wants a border, a hard border. I just don't know anyone who wants a hard border. Um, and uh, they felt that the border was introduced as a negotiating tool by Europe and that Ireland fell in line with that because their perspective, for what it's worth, and it's mine, so I'll be honest and say it's mine that um, Brussels doesn't want to see the UK get a particularly good deal because if they do then where does that stop mm. and we can see what's happening within Europe at the moment with Italy, with Poland, with Hungary, with Austria, with Germany you can see the whole thing there's even an uh, IREXIT group I don't know how strong it's going to be has emerged. so does Brussels which favours integration want to see the thing breaking up and people becoming disparate no, they don't. So uh, the way to, to deal with that uh, was to bring the border on. 
maybe I've been cynical, I don't believe I am. And I think Ireland fell in line with that because I went to the All-Ireland Dialogues and uh, speaking to a lot of people there, and it was very clear what the economic implications of Brexit were going to be for the Republic of Ireland. So how do you protect that? You keep Northern Ireland in the single market and you keep it in the customs union. How do you do that? You play the GFA card, you play the border card. Now, that's maybe I've been cynical, but that's how I read it. I think it was a, a tactical thing to do. And to me, it, it skewed the negotiations mm. because I felt the negotiations should have started out talking about trade. Trade is what makes the world go around. Trade was going to create the wealth to fund all our social services. So what do we want to trade? How do we keep the supply chains going? How do we do that? And then what structures do we need to put in place to do that? But they started off by saying we want to keep these structures and then how do we marry the trade up to that? To me, it was the wrong way to approach it. But I've outlined what my view is as the way they took the view they did. But to go back to the Citizens' Assembly... um, Perhaps if there had been a Citizens' Assembly more in prior to the Brexit referendum, in the way that it operates in the South, where you had this, you know, uh, proportion of the population looking in detail at a, at a difficult issue, so for example, women's reproductive rights, yeah. the abortion referendum, uh, you know, perhaps that would have addressed the issue where people felt they didn't know what they voted for, and at least that would have given people, you know, a confidence that a subset that's representative of the population had looked in detail, and perhaps that's a way that we should, you know, look at the possibility of a citizens' assembly in the future in Northern Ireland. Absolutely, I mean, it is a very effective way of gauging what you know the the feeling is at the grassroots and allows people to vote. Unfortunately, it won't be taken seriously. Um, it's a bit like the civic forum. Um, I mean, after the Good Friday Agreement, they couldn't wait to get rid of it, uh, saying that these were people that were non-elected having a voice, so it would fall dead in the water. But I would love it. I'd love to see it a reality. We had the Citizens' Assembly project down here yesterday, giving us an update on where they're going, and they're going to look at the social care system as their first issue, and the hope that they might get all our issues after it. And one of the things, as you've rightly pointed out, Paul, is... They're saying they are really brilliant whenever they look at issues where people are stuck and that's how they work best. And they have run them on Brexit in the UK where the majority of the people in the room they start with were uh, voted leave. And by the end, when they heard actually an informed discussion and an informed debate and the truth about migration and travel, their opinions have changed. So, Terry first, and then Darren, you can come back on that one. I just want to make a quick comment on what Maureen has said about the Civic Assembly, a Civic Forum, whatever shape it takes, and I would be very supportive of that. But I think we need to be careful, because um, there could be political parties out there who have got themselves on a hook. How do they get themselves off that hook? They get the Civic Assemblies to do it for them. Because of the Civic Assembly, for example comes forward with saying we need to change our laws on abortion. Uh, the party who has got themselves that particular hook can turn around and say, oh, this is what the Civic Assembly wants, this is what community wants, so we have to respond to that. That's that problem solved. <coughs> Let's now just go back to doing what we've always been doing. I don't think we can <coughs> happen. Uh, I think if there's going to be a civic assembly, a civic forum, it has to be part of the structure. It has to be part of the Good Friday Agreement structures. It was there originally, 
I know from my own experience that the politicians were not over keen on it because they don't want to share their power, they don't want to share their influence. It was discussed, I think, under the Storm Agreement or the Fresh Start, and it was registered by six people. So be careful about the Civic Assemblies, very supportive of them, but it's not just about solving the issues and getting the parties off the hook, it's about restructuring and reviewing how we govern this place. And that has to be kept on the agenda while you're discussing the issues that have caused the problem. Darren, you want to come back and then I'm going to open because for our first time ever we have a bit of an audience and I'm stressing a bit of an audience and I just want to see after Darren if anybody's any questions. Just so, Darren, you want to reply there? I think just on the, the, the previous points around the civic forum, I think that would be beneficial, but I think it needs to be um, civic leaders, uh, community leaders and community people first before the civic forum. I think what we need is politics is a bad, dirty word here. Um, I'm involved in the local council and I know um, how dirty politics can be. But I think that we, we have enough of politicians. I think the community need to take a stand. You know, we don't have loyalist hospitals and Republican hospitals. We don't have loyalist roads and Republican roads. We have the same issues. If we can bring loyalist and Republican leaders and nationalist unionist leaders together on social issues, I believe that that's a way forward. Now, people might not want to go in the same room because obviously there's political control and there's a lot of people's uh, careers at risk. But I think we have to be a wee bit radical here. And I think we have to talk to each other within communities and say, listen, enough's enough and mobilise a mass movement of people because the politicians are not going to do it. So move towards real participative democracy as, as, as it should and, be. And I've been trying to do that through council. We're trying to get local council leisure centres open up to meet your councillor and meet your reps and, and met with their assistance because party political people want them to come to their, their office. They don't want to have an open surgery where people can meet different people. And So I think it has to be brought back to the very back the very starting communities need to take action but it needs to be a cross community effort it can't be one community going and championing all these issues it has to be meaningful and it has to be but the dialogue has to happen within community and civic leaders at that point well Gerard perhaps we could we've got Professor Shivana Neil from Ulster University present so I mean Mental health issues are clearly affected uh, by what's happened during the Troubles and by the peace process, which we hear from community dialogue has now gone backwards. And so to what extent do we feel, you know, that uh, that there's a a collective mental health issue coming out of Brexit in terms of creating new tensions between communities? Um, That's a really good point. It's really important. There's two two things coming out from today's discussion. Um, First of all, there's this sort of general narrative of hopelessness that seems to permeate the conversations. Um, And certainly at the start of our conversation that was coming across, um, when we talk about young people leaving and those that that don't leave, what is here for them? Um, And I'm concerned personally about the suicide rates across Northern Ireland and in the urban deprived areas of which dairy is one so that's one thing this general hopelessness the conversation and the, and the way we're talking about this and I think it's incumbent upon us all actually to to try and create hope where we can here um, and, and to do that across whatever fora we have um, and the second one is about the divisions that are being re-established over Brexit and the idea of nationalists and loyalists or unionists perhaps reigniting those those old tensions, it's about something different but it's not really about something 
something different. It's about who we are. And that's that for me is is really quite scary because of all the work that we had done to bring people together to show what we have in common. And now again, we're illustrating our differences. It's heartening to know that that I guess young people are more united on this and we need to harness that and bring them into politics in whatever way we can. Um, but the fear is for me that all of those divisions will reignite then the traumas of the past. So people that, that the traumas just sitting under the surface, they've managed to black it out or whatever and block it out and move on with their lives in some sort of way. But now again, that um, and PTSD is, is flashbacks, nightmares. And, and this these kind of conversations and the arguments that people are having between two communities can actually reignite that. And remember, this is happening at the same time as we're trying to set up legacy institutions to understand what happened during the Troubles and to try and have some sort of peace and justice processes that, that can bring us beyond that. And I'm just so concerned that these um, these two issues are going to get confused and that, that it's going to cause harm and, and further harm and uh, reignite mental health problems and create... Uh, new traumas and new mental illnesses at a time when we don't have the money even to treat the problems that we have. You know, there's so much money going into Brexit at the minute and working, uh, you know, with the economic issues and the impact of that, that that our mental health services are forgotten about. And we still have so many people out there that are suffering. Um, so, so those are the things I'm thinking about. I don't have any answers, but I think we all need to try and at least be hopeful and look for solutions and look at bringing young people into the conversation more because that's where I believe the future is. And trying to get young people to stay here. How can we do that? What can we ourselves do to get our young people to stay in the city? Because actually it's a great place. It's a very important point, of course, Siobhan, that um, Brexit has been taking us, what, two, two and a bit years so far. And we don't, because we don't know the outcome, it's very difficult to put forward solutions. Has anybody any final comments or that on the panel that, that you'd like to make just to, to bring us to an end of what was, I think, a very useful discussion? Maureen, any final things to say? I think what you're saying is very important, you know, you know about the, the feeling of hopelessness and the need to bring hope. And when you look at the suicide rate, when you look at the unemployment, um, I, I was born and bred in Derry. Uh, I live outside of the town now. But I, I can't believe that after all of the conflict, we're still sitting here talking about problems that even precede the conflict. <coughs> Huge unemployment, you know, a McGee campus that's never been fit for purpose. You know, um, deprivation in areas that still goes on. And the big the big thing that, that bothers me all of the time is that, that, that there's no thinking, and it was on the radio this morning about education and no money for education. Where's, where's the biggest thing that we need to do to change our society and attitudes is, you know, consolidate, bring integrated education forward so that at the young age, at least young people, are seeing that they all have that in common, that they're all human beings. And I think that that will be a good way of bringing hope as well and a difference. And I've worked with victims and survivors down through the years and trauma, and, and you're absolutely right, it reignites uh, old traumas, it brings it back, you know, and we have to focus on something different and be more hopeful. Unfortunately, with this whole Brexit, there's not a lot to say that's flyer or good about it, so but I like your points. I just want to make a quick comment, and we'll not be able to discuss this at length, but I just want to throw it into the mix and the lights what's been said there for Siobhan um, about the shortage of money and so on. I think we, as a, a total community, we need, of course, we need resources, but I think we need to sit down and look at how we manage the resources that we do have. And there's millions of pounds in this country being wasted on choosing to live as a segregated community. 
You know, I was in education for 36 years and there are schools sitting with empty spaces because we want them segregated. There's teacher training segregated because when I was president of the Students' Union in 1973, I was arguing as a student leader at that time that the teacher training should be merged and come under Queen's and become the Institute of Education for Queen's. 40 plus years, 50 plus years afterwards, we're still having that conversation and we've wasted millions in the meantime keeping up vanity projects for politicians and communities. So we as a whole community need to sit down and say, how do we want to live? Do we want to live separate and segregated or do we want to live as a proper community? as the point has been made, when you go into a hospital, it's not a loyalist hospital, etc., etc. Et we need to make, have that conversation and make what I believe is the, the proper decision, say, look, let's live together as a community and use our resources more wisely than we do at the moment and then chase other resources to add to that. I think, um, we need, again, we need to start a community. There's an awful lot of people here totally marginalised and, and, and not engaged in anything. And I think, you know, programmes and, and projects and things that, as you say, vanity projects are there for people who are engaging. And a sizable uh, amount of uh, young people and their parents are not engaged in anything, o- only maybe some services through statutory support that they need to engage with. So I think we need to be building resilience within communities as a first front. We need to be educating our young people around uh, mental health and how to, how to express yourself and going to schools, community groups and homes. I think we need to start knocking doors, go back to calling on the people to make sure your neighbours are okay and building communities from the ground up because again everything else has failed them mm-hmm. and I think that what we have at the moment is an absolute disgrace where people are, are, are looking and putting duplicate resources into each other's communities because he got, they got it and we have to keep ourselves right and get it there for us mm-hmm. you know we need to be going back and talking to community I think that's at the forefront of, of everything I think we need to learn from the process of Brexit because Brexit was a you know, a, a binary choice, as they say it, you know, you're either in or you're out. And it doesn't give much scope for talking about how you build communities together. And within England, it was a divisive event. Within Northern Ireland, because society was already divided, it was an even more divisive event. And so we need to consider how we create conversations that are more inclusive, that bring people together, that are more in-depth in terms of enabling people to understand. And I think the community dialogue work, where they're talking about citizens' assemblies and the experience from the South, shows the possibilities for that and how we need to avoid, in the future, simple yes-no questions which result in misleading answers. Thank you. Thank you, Paul, Darn, Terry and Maureen. Look forward to getting a reaction to this podcast and we'll talk to you again soon the highwell trust podcast presents brexit focus as we draw near to the uk's exit from the european union paul goslin brings monthly updates on the negotiating processes how brexit is affecting us in the northwest whilst attempting to take away some of the fear and uncertainty from the issue on the local community Hollywell Trust Brexit Focus podcast, released on the 25th of every month. Catch up on past episodes for free on our SoundCloud page, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher.com. Search Hollywell Podcast. Okay, that's us for another episode. 
just a reminder to look out for Paul's Brexit blog, which will appear in the Derry Journal on Friday the 28th of September. And thanks, as always, to our funders, the Community Foundation for Northern Ireland, who fund this podcast through the Brexit Dialogue Fund, and to Hollywood Trust core funders, the Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland and Derry City and Straban District Council. Remember, you can get all past episodes of this and all our Hollywood Trust podcasts through our SoundCloud page and through our various social media channels. So thanks as always to all our contributors and in particular to Paul Gosling and to Dee Kern for production support. You can stay up to date with us on our social media pages on Facebook, look for the Hollywell Trust and on Twitter it's at Hollywell Team.